Section 37 of The Fable of the Bees by Bernard Mandeville. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The third dialogue between Horatio and Cleomenes. Horatio, I thank you for your book. Cleomenes, your acceptance of it I acknowledge as a great favor. Horatio, I confess that once I thought nobody could have persuaded me to read it, but you managed me very skillfully, and nothing could have convinced me so well as the instance of dueling. The argument, a majori ad minus, struck me without your mentioning it. A passion that can subdue the fear of death may blind a man's understanding and do almost everything else. Cleomenes, it is incredible what strange, various, unaccountable, and contradictory forms we may be shaped into by a passion that is not to be gratified without being concealed, and to never enjoyed with greater ecstasy than when we are most fully persuaded that it is well hid. And therefore, there is no benevolence or good nature, no amiable quality or social virtue, that may not be counterfeited by it, and, in short, no achievement, good or bad, that the human body or mind are capable of, which it may not seem to perform. As to its blinding and infatuating the persons possessed with it to a high degree, there is no doubt of it, for what strength of reason, I pray, what judgment or penetration has the greatest genius, if he pretends to any religion, to boast of, after he has owned himself to have been more terrified by groundless apprehensions and an imaginary evil from vain impotent men, whom he has never injured, than he was alarmed with the just fears of a real punishment from an all-wise and omnipotent God, whom he has highly offended." Horatio, but your friend makes no such religious reflections. He actually speaks in favor of dueling. Cleomenes, what, because he would have the laws against it as severe as possible, and nobody pardoned without exception that offends that way? Horatio, that indeed seems to discourage it, but he shows the necessity of keeping up that custom to polish and brighten society in general. Cleomenes, do you not see the irony there? Horatio, no indeed. He plainly demonstrates the usefulness of it, gives as good reasons as it is possible to invent, and shows how much conversation would suffer if that practice was abolished. Cleomenes, can you think a man serious on a subject when he leaves it in the manner he does? Horatio, I do not remember that. Cleomenes, here is the book. I will look for the passage. Stroke, pray read this. Horatio, it is strange that a nation should grudge to see, perhaps, half a dozen men sacrificed in a twelve-month, to obtain so valuable a blessing as the politeness of manners, the pleasure of conversation, and the happiness of company in general, that is so often willing to expose, and sometimes loses as many thousands in a few hours, without knowing whether it will do any good or not. This, indeed, seems to be said with a sneer, but in what goes before he is very serious. Cleomenes, he is so when he says that the practice of dueling, that is, the keeping up of the fashion of it, contributes to the politeness of manners and pleasure of conversation. And this is very true, but that politeness itself and that pleasure are the things he laughs at and exposes throughout the book. Horatio, but who knows what to make of a man who recommends a thing very seriously in one page and ridicules it in the next? Cleomenes, it is his opinion that there is no solid principle to go by but the Christian religion, and that few embrace it with sincerity. 
Always look upon him in this view, and you will never find him inconsistent with himself. Whenever at first sight he seems to be so, look again, and upon nearer inquiry you will find that he is only pointing at or laboring to detect the inconsistency of others with the principles they pretend to. Horatio, he seems to have nothing less at heart than religion. Cleomenes, that is true, and if he had appeared otherwise, he would never have been read by the people whom he designed his book for, the modern deists and all the beau monde. It is those he wants to come at. To the first he sets forth the origin and insufficiency of virtue, and their own insincerity in the practice of it. To the rest he shows the folly of vice and pleasure, the vanity of worldly greatness, and the hypocrisy of all those divines who, pretending to preach the gospel, give and take allowances that are inconsistent with and quite contrary to the precepts of it. Horatio, but this is not the opinion the world has of the book. It is commonly imagined that it is wrote for the encouragement of vice and to debauch the nation. Cleomenes, have you found any such thing in it? Horatio, to speak my conscience, I must confess I have not. Vice is exposed in it and laughed at, but it ridicules war and martial courage, as well as honor and everything else. Cleomenes, pardon me, religion is ridiculed in no part of it. Horatio, but if it is a good book, why then are so many of the clergy so much against it as they are? Cleomenes, for the reason I have given you, my friend has exposed their lives, but he has done it in such a manner that nobody can say he has wronged them or treated them harshly. People are never more vexed than when the thing that offends them is what they must not complain of. They give the book an ill name because they are angry, but it is not their interest to tell you the true reason why they are so. I could draw you a parallel case that would clear up this matter, if you would have patience to hear me, which, as you are a great admirer of operas, I can hardly expect. Horatio, anything to be informed. Cleomenes, I always had such an aversion to eunuchs, as no fine singing or acting of any of them has yet been able to conquer. When I hear a feminine voice, I look for a petticoat, and I perfectly loathe the sight of those sexless animals. Suppose that a man with the same dislike to them had wit at will, and a mind to lash that abominable piece of luxury by which men are taught in cold blood to spoil males for diversion, and out of wantonness to make waste of their own species. In order to this, we will say, he takes a handle from the operation itself, he describes and treats it in the most inoffensive manner, then shows the narrow bounds of human knowledge and the small assistance we can have, either from dissection or philosophy, or any part of the mathematics, to trace and penetrate into the cause a priori, why this destroying of manhood should have that surprising effect upon the voice, and afterwards demonstrates how sure we are a posteriori that it has a considerable influence not only on the pharynx, the glands and muscles of the throat, but likewise the windpipe and the lungs themselves, and in short on the whole mass of blood, consequently all the juices of the body and every fiber in it. He might say likewise that no honey, no preparations of sugar, raisins, or spermaceti, no emulsions, lozenges, or other medicines, cooling or balsamic, no bleeding, no temperance or choice in eatables, no abstinence from women, from wine, and everything that is hot, sharp, or spiritous, 
were of that efficacy to preserve, sweeten, and strengthen the voice. He might insist upon it that nothing could do this so effectually as castration. For a blind to his main scope, and to amuse his readers, he might speak of this practice as made use of for other purposes, that it had been inflicted as a solemn punishment for analogous crimes, that others had voluntarily submitted to it to preserve health and prolong life, whilst the Romans, by Caesar's testimony, thought it more cruel than death, morte gravius, how it had been used sometimes by way of revenge, and then say something in pity of poor Abelard, at other times for precaution, and then relate the story of Combabus and Stratonice, with scraps from Martial, Juvenal, and other poets, he might interlard it, and from a thousand pleasant things that have been said on the subject, he might pick out the most diverting to embellish the whole. His design being satire, he would blame our fondness for these castrati, and ridicule the age in which a brave English nobleman and a general officer serves his country at the hazard of his life, a whole twelve-month, for less pay than an Italian no-man of scoundrel extraction receives, for now and then singing a song in great safety, during only the winter season. He would laugh at the caresses and the court that are made to them by persons of the first quality, who prostitute their familiarity with those most abject wretches, and misplace the honor and civilities only due to their equals, on things that are no part of the creation, and owe their being to the surgeon, animals so contemptible that they can curse their maker without ingratitude. If he should call this book, The Eunuch is the Man, as soon as I heard the title, before I saw the book, I should understand by it that eunuchs were now esteemed, that they were in fashion and in the public favor, and considering that a eunuch is in reality not a man, I should think it was a banter upon eunuchs, or a satire against those who had a greater value for them than they deserved. But if the gentlemen of the Academy of Music, displeased at the freedom they were treated with, should take it ill that a paltry scribbler should interfere and pretend to censure their diversion as well as they might, if they should be very angry and study to do him a mischief, and accordingly, not having much to say in behalf of eunuchs, not touch upon anything the author had said against their pleasure, but represent him to the world as an advocate for castration, and endeavor to draw the public odium upon him by quotations taken from him proper for that purpose, it would not be difficult to raise a clamor against the author or find a grand jury to present his book. Horatio, the simile holds very well as to the injustice of the accusation and the insincerity of the complaint. But is it as true that luxury will render a nation flourishing and that private vices are public benefits, as that castration preserves and strengthens the voice? Cleomenes, with the restrictions my friend requires, I believe it is, and the cases are exactly alike. Nothing is more effectual to preserve, mend, and strengthen a fine voice in youth than castration. The question is not whether this is true, but whether it is eligible, whether a fine voice is an equivalent for the loss, and whether a man would prefer the satisfaction of singing and the advantages that may accrue from it to the comforts of marriage and the pleasure of posterity of which enjoyments it destroys the possibility. In like manner, my friend demonstrates, in the first place, that the national happiness which the generality wish and pray for is wealth and power, glory and worldly greatness, 
to live in ease, in affluence and splendor at home, and to be feared, courted, and esteemed abroad. In the second, that such a felicity is not to be attained to without avarice, profuseness, pride, envy, ambition, and other vices. The latter being made evident beyond contradiction, the question is not whether it is true, but whether this happiness is worth having at the rate it is only to be had at, and whether anything ought to be wished for, which a nation cannot enjoy, unless the generality of them are vicious. This he offers to the consideration of Christians, and men who pretend to have renounced the world, with all the pomp and vanity of it. Horatio, how does it appear that the author addresses himself to such? Cleomenes, from his writing it in English, and publishing it in London. But have you read it through yet? Horatio, twice. There are many things I like very well, but I am not pleased with the whole. Cleomenes, what objection have you against it? Horatio, it has diminished the pleasure I had in reading a much better book. Lord Shaftesbury is my favorite author. I can take delight in enthusiasm, but the charms of it cease as soon as I am told what it is I enjoy. Since we are such odd creatures, why should we not make the most of it? Cleomenes, I thought you was resolved to be better acquainted with yourself, and to search into your heart with care and boldness. Horatio, that is a cruel thing. I tried it three times since I saw you last, till it put me into a sweat, and then I was forced to leave off. Cleomenes, you should try again, and use yourself by degrees to think abstractly, and then the book will be a great help to you. Horatio, to confound me at will, it makes a jest of all politeness and good manners. Cleomenes, excuse me, sir, it only tells us what they are. Horatio, it tells us that all good manners consist in flattering the pride of others and concealing our own. Is that not a horrid thing? Cleomenes, but is it not true? Horatio, as soon as I had read that passage, it struck me. Down I laid the book, and I tried in about fifty instances, sometimes of civility and sometimes of ill manners, whether it would answer or not, and I professed that it held good in every one. Cleomenes, and so it would if you tried till doomsday. Horatio, but is that not provoking? I would give a hundred guineas with all my heart that I did not know it. I cannot endure to see so much of my own nakedness. Cleomenes, I never met with such an open enmity to truth in a man of honor before. Horatio, you shall be as severe upon me as you please. What I say is fact. But since I am got in so far, I must go through with it now. There are fifty things that I want to be informed about. Cleomenes, name them, pray. If I can be of any service to you, I shall reckon it as a great honor. I am perfectly well acquainted with the author's sentiments. Horatio, I have twenty questions to ask about pride, and I do not know where to begin. There is another thing I do not understand, which is, that there can be no virtue without self-denial. Cleomenes, this was the opinion of all the ancients. Lord Shaftesbury was the first that maintained the contrary. Horatio, but are there no persons in the world that are good by choice? Cleomenes, yes, but then they are directed in that choice by reason and experience, and not by nature. I mean, not by untaught nature. But there is an ambiguity in the word good which I would avoid. Let us stick to that of virtuous. And then I affirm that no action is such, which does not suppose and point at some conquest or other, some victory great or small over untaught nature. 
otherwise the epithet is improper. Horatio, but if by the help of a careful education this victory is obtained, when we are young, may we not be virtuous afterwards voluntarily and with pleasure? Cleomenes, yes, if it really was obtained, but how shall we be sure of this, and what reason have we to believe that it ever was, when it is evident that from our infancy, instead of endeavoring to conquer our appetites, we have always been taught, and have taken pains ourselves to conceal them, and we are conscious within, that whatever alterations have been made in our manners and our circumstances, the passions themselves always remained. The system that virtue requires to self-denial is, as my friend has justly observed, a vast inlet to hypocrisy. It will, on all accounts, furnish men with a more obvious handle and a greater opportunity of counterfeiting the love of society and regard to the public than ever they could have received from the contrary doctrine, viz., that there is no merit but in the conquest of the passions, nor any virtue without apparent self-denial. Let us ask those that have had long experience, and are well skilled in human affairs, whether they have found the generality of men such impartial judges of themselves as never to think better of their own worth than is deserved, or so candid in the acknowledgment of their hidden faults and slips they could never be convinced of, that there is no fear they should ever stifle or deny them. Where is the man that has at no time covered his failings, and screened himself with false appearances, or never pretended to act from principles of social virtue and his regard to others, when he knew in his heart that his greatest care had been to oblige himself? The best of us sometimes receive applause without undeceiving those who give it, though, at the same time, we are conscious that the actions for which we suffer ourselves to be thought well of are the result of a powerful frailty in our nature that has often been prejudicial to us, and which we have wished a thousand times in vain that we could have conquered. The same motives may produce very different actions as men differ in temper and circumstances. Persons of an easy fortune may appear virtuous from the same turn of mind that would show their frailty if they were poor. If we would know the world, we must look into it, you take no delight in the occurrences of low life, but if we always remain among persons of quality and extend our inquiries no farther, the transactions there will not furnish us with a sufficient knowledge of everything that belongs to our nature. There are, among the middling people, men of low circumstances, tolerably well-educated, that set out with the same stock of virtues and vices, and though equally qualified, meet with very different success visibly owing to the difference in their temper. Let us take a view of two persons bred to the same business, that have nothing but their parts and the world before them, launching out with the same helps and disadvantages. Let there be no difference between them but in their temper, the one active and the other indolent. The latter will never get an estate by his own industry, though his profession be gainful and himself master of it. Chance or some uncommon accident may be the occasion of great alterations in him, but without that he will hardly ever raise himself to mediocrity. Unless his pride affects him in an extraordinary manner, he must always be poor, and nothing but some share of vanity can hinder him from being despicably so. If he be a man of sense, he will be strictly honest, and a middling stock of covetousness will never divert him from it. In the active stirring man, that is easily reconciled to the bustle of the world, we shall discover quite different symptoms under the same circumstances, 
and a very little avarice will egg him on to pursue his aim with eagerness and assiduity. Small scruples are no opposition to him. Where sincerity will not serve, he uses artifice, and encompassing his ends, the greatest use he will make of his good sense will be to preserve as much as possible the appearance of honesty, when his interest obliges him to deviate from it. To get wealth, or even a livelihood by arts and sciences, it is not sufficient to understand them. It is a duty incumbent on all men, who have their maintenance to seek, to make known and forward themselves in the world, as far as decency allows of, without bragging of themselves, or doing prejudice to others. Here the indolent man is very deficient and wanting to himself, but seldom will own his fault, and often blames the public for not making use of him and encouraging that merit, which they never were acquainted with, and himself perhaps took pleasure to conceal. And though you convince him of his error, and that he has neglected even the most warrantable methods of soliciting employment, he will endeavor to color over his frailty with the appearance of virtue, and what is altogether owing to his too easy temper, and an excessive fondness for the calmness of his mind, he will ascribe to his modesty and the great aversion he has to impudence and boasting. The man of a contrary temper trusts not to his merit only, or the setting it off to the best advantage. He takes pain to heighten it in the opinion of others, and makes his abilities seem greater than he knows them to be, as it is counted folly for a man to proclaim his own excellencies and speak magnificently of himself, so his chief business is to seek acquaintance and make friends on purpose to do it for him. All other passions he sacrifices to his ambition. He laughs at disappointments, is inured to refusals, and no repulse dismays him. This renders the whole man always flexible to his interest. He can defraud his body of necessaries, and allow no tranquility to his mind, and counterfeit, if it will serve his turn, temperance, chastity, compassion, and piety itself, without one grain of virtue or religion. His endeavors to advance his fortune, per fas et nefas, are always restless, and have no bounds, but where he is obliged to act openly, and has reason to fear the censure of the world. It is very diverting to see how, in the different persons I speak of, natural temper will warp and model the very passions to its own bias. Pride, for example, has not the same, but almost a quite contrary effect on the one to what it has on the other. The stirring, active man it makes in love with finery, clothes, furniture, equipages, building, and everything his superiors enjoy. The other it renders sullen, and perhaps morose, and if he has wit, prone to satire, though he be otherwise a good-natured man. Self-love in every individual ever bestirs itself in soothing and flattering the darling inclination, always turning from us the dismal side of the prospect, and the indolent man in such circumstances, finding nothing pleasing without, turns his view inward upon himself, and there, looking on everything with great indulgence, admires and takes delight in his own parts, whether natural or acquired. Hence he is easily induced to despise all others who have not the same good qualifications, especially the powerful and wealthy, whom yet he never hates or envies with any violence, because that would ruffle his temper. All things that are difficult he looks upon as impossible, which makes him despair of meliorating his condition. And as he has no possessions, and his gettings will but just maintain him in a low station of life, 
so his good sense, if he would enjoy so much as the appearance of happiness, must necessarily put him upon two things, to be frugal, and pretend to have no value for riches, for, by neglecting either, he must be blown up, and his frailty unavoidably discovered. Horatio, I am pleased with your observations, and the knowledge you display of mankind, but pray, is not the frugality you now speak of a virtue? Cleomenes, I think not. Horatio, where there is but a small income, frugality is built upon reason, and in this case there is an apparent self-denial, without which an indolent man that has no value for money cannot be frugal, and we see indolent men that have no regard for wealth reduced to beggary, as it often happens, it is most commonly for want of this virtue. Cleomenes, I told you before that the indolent man, setting out as he did, would be poor, and that nothing but some share of vanity could hinder him from being despicably so. A strong fear of shame may gain so much upon the indolence of a man of sense, that he will bestir himself sufficiently to escape contempt, but it will hardly make him do any more. Therefore he embraces frugality, as being instrumental and assisting to him in procuring his summum bonum, the darling quiet of his easy mind, whereas the active man, with the same share of vanity, would do anything rather than submit to the same frugality, unless his avarice forced him to do it. Frugality is no virtue, when it is imposed upon us by any of the passions, and the contempt of riches is seldom sincere. I have known men of plentiful estates, that, on account of posterity, or other warrantable views of employing their money, were saving, and more penurious than they would have been if their wealth had been greater. But I never yet found a frugal man without avarice or necessity. And again, there are innumerable spendthrifts, lavish and extravagant to a high degree, who seem not to have the least regard to money, whilst they have any to fling away. But these wretches are the least capable of bearing poverty of any, and the money once gone, hourly discover how uneasy, impatient, and miserable they are without it. But what several in all ages have made pretense to, the contempt of riches, is more scarce than is commonly imagined. To see a man of a very good estate, in health and strength of body and mind, one that has no reason to complain of the world or fortune, actually despise both, and embrace a voluntary poverty, for a laudable purpose, is a great rarity. I know but one in all antiquity, to whom all this may be applied with strictness of truth. Horatio, who is that, pray? Cleomenes, Anaxagoras of Clazomene in Ionia. He was very rich, of noble extraction, and admired for his great capacity. He divided and gave away his estate among his relations, and refused to meddle with the administration of public affairs that was offered him, for no other reason than that he might have leisure for contemplation of the works of nature and the study of philosophy. Horatio, to me it seems more difficult to be virtuous without money than with. It is senseless for a man to be poor when he can help it, and if I saw anybody choose it, when he might as lawfully be rich, I would think him to be distracted. Cleomenes, but you would not think so if you saw him sell his estate and give the money to the poor. You know where that was required. Horatio, it is not required of us. Cleomenes, perhaps not. But what say you to renouncing the world and the solemn promise we have made of it? Horatio, in a literal sense that is impossible, unless we go out of it, and therefore I do not think, 
that to renounce the world signifies any more than not to comply with the vicious, wicked part of it. Cleomenes, I did not expect a more rigid construction from you, though it is certain that wealth and power are great snares and strong impediments to all Christian virtue. But the generality of mankind that have anything to lose are of your opinion. And let us bar saints and madmen, we shall find everywhere, that those who pretend to undervalue and are always haranguing against wealth are generally poor and indolent. But who can blame them? They act in their own defense. Nobody that could help it would ever be laughed at, for it must be owned that of all the hardships of poverty, it is that which is the most intolerable. Nil habet in Felix paupertas durius in se, quam quod ridiculos homines faciat. Stroke. In the very satisfaction that is enjoyed by those who excel in, or are possessed of things valuable, there is interwoven a spice of contempt for others that are destitute of them, which nothing keeps from public view but a mixture of pity and good manners. Whoever denies this, let them consult within, and examine whether it is not the same with happiness as what Seneca says of the reverse. Nemo est miser nisi comparatus. The contempt and ridicule I speak of is, without doubt, what all men of sense and education endeavor to avoid or disappoint. Now, look upon the behavior of the two contrary tempers before us, and mind how differently they set about this talk, every one suitably to his own inclination. The man of action, you see, leaves no stone unturned to acquire quod oportet habere, but this is impossible for the indolent, he cannot stir, his idol ties him down hand and foot, and, therefore, the easiest and, indeed, the only thing he has left is to quarrel with the world and find out arguments to depreciate what others value themselves upon. Horatio, I now plainly see how pride and good sense must put an indolent man that is poor upon frugality, and likewise the reason why they will make him to affect to be content and seem pleased with his low condition. For, if he was not frugal, want and misery are at the door, and if he shows any fondness for riches or a more ample way of living, he loses the only plea he has for his darling frailty, and immediately he will be asked why he does not exert himself in a better manner, and he will be continually told of the opportunities he neglects. Cleomenes, it is evident, then, that the true reasons why men speak against things are not always writ upon their foreheads. Horatio, but after all this quiet, easy temper, this indolence you talk of, is it not what, in plain English, we call laziness? Cleomenes, not at all. It implies no sloth, or aversion to labor. An indolent man may be very diligent, though he cannot be industrious. He will take up with things below him, if they come in his way. He will work in a garret, or anywhere else, remote from public view, with patience and assiduity. But he knows not how to solicit and tease others to employ him, or demand his due of a shuffling, designing master that is either difficult of access or tenacious of his money. If he be a man of letters, he will study hard for a livelihood, but generally parts with his labors at a disadvantage, and will knowingly sell them at an under-rate to an obscure man who offers to purchase, rather than bear the insults of haughty booksellers and be plagued with the sordid language of the trade. An indolent man may, by chance, meet with a person of quality that takes a fancy to him, but he will never get a patron by his own address, 
neither will he ever be the better for it, when he has one, further than the unasked-for bounty and downright generosity of his benefactor make him. As he speaks for himself with reluctancy and is always afraid of asking favors, so, for benefits received, he shows no other gratitude than what the natural emotions of his heart suggest to him. The striving, active man studies all the winning ways to ingratiate himself, and hunts after patrons with design and sagacity. Whilst they are beneficial to him, he affects a perpetual sense of thankfulness, but all his acknowledgment of past obligations he turns into solicitations for fresh favors. His complacence may be engaging, and his flattery ingenious, but the heart is untouched. He has neither leisure nor the power to love his benefactors. The eldest he has, he will always sacrifice to a new one, and he has no other esteem for the fortune, the greatness, or the credit of a patron than as he can make them subservient either to raise or maintain his own. From all this, and a little attention on human affairs, we may easily perceive, in the first place, that the man of action and an enterprising temper, in following the dictates of his nature, must meet with more rubs and obstacles infinitely than the indolent, and a multitude of strong temptations to deviate from the rules of strict virtue, which hardly ever come in the other's way, that, in many circumstances, he will be forced to commit such actions for which, all his skill and prudence notwithstanding, he will, by somebody or other, deservedly be thought to be an ill man, and that to end with a tolerable reputation, after a long course of life, he must have had a great deal of good fortune as well as cunning. Secondly, that the indolent man may indulge his inclinations, and be as sensual as his circumstances may let him, with little offense or disturbance to his neighbor, that the excessive value he sets upon the tranquility of his mind, and the grand aversion he has to part with it, must prove a strong curb to every passion that comes uppermost, none of which, by this means, can ever affect him in any high degree, and consequently, that the corruption of his heart remaining, he may, with little art and no great trouble, acquire many valuable qualities, that shall have all the appearances of social virtues, whilst nothing extraordinary befalls him. As to his contempt of the world, the indolent man perhaps will scorn to make his court, and cringe to a haughty favorite, that will browbeat him at first. But he will run away with joy to a rich nobleman, that he is sure will receive him with kindness and humanity. With him he will partake, without reluctancy, of all the elegant comforts of life that are offered, the most expensive not accepted. Would you try him further, confer upon him honor and wealth in abundance. If this change in his fortune stirs up no vice that lay dormant before, as it may by rendering him either covetous or extravagant, he will soon conform himself to the fashionable world. Perhaps he will be a kind master, an indulgent father, a benevolent neighbor, munificent to merit that pleases him, a patron to virtue, and a well-wisher to his country, but for the rest he will take all the pleasure he is capable of enjoying, stifle no passion he can calmly gratify, and, in the midst of a luxuriant plenty, laugh heartily at frugality, and the contempt of riches and greatness he professed in his poverty, and cheerfully own the futility of those pretenses. Horatio, I am convinced that, in the opinion of virtues requiring self-denial, there is greater certainty, and hypocrites have less latitude than in the contrary system. Cleomenes, 
Whoever follows his own inclinations, be they never so kind, beneficent, or human, never quarrel with any vice, but what is clashing with his temperament and nature, whereas those who act from a principle of virtue take always reason for their guide, and combat, without exception, every passion that hinders them from their duty. The indolent man will never deny a just debt, but, if it be large, he will not give himself the trouble which, poor as he is, he might and ought to take to discharge it, or, at least, satisfy his creditors, unless he is often dunned or threatened to be sued for it. He will not be a litigious neighbor, nor make mischief among his acquaintance, but he will never serve his friend or his country at the expense of his quiet. He will not be rapacious, oppress the poor, or commit vile actions for lucre, but then he will never exert himself, and be at the pains another would take on all opportunities to maintain a large family, make provision for children, and promote his kindred and relations, and his darling frailty will incapacitate him from doing a thousand things for the benefit of the society, which, with the same parts and opportunities, he might, and would have done, had he been of another temper. Horatio, your observations are very curious, and, as far as I can judge from what I have seen myself, very just and natural. Cleomenes, everybody knows that there is no virtue so often counterfeited as charity, and yet so little regard have the generality of men to truth, that how gross and barefaced soever the deceit is in pretenses of this nature, the world never fails of being angry with, and hating those who detect or take notice of the fraud. It is possible that, with blind fortune on his side, a mean shopkeeper, by driving a trade prejudicial to his country on the one hand, and grinding on all occasions the face of the poor on the other, may accumulate great wealth, which, in process of time, by continual scraping and sordid saving, may be raised into an exorbitant and unheard of estate for a tradesman. Should such a one, when old and decrepit, lay out the greatest part of his immense riches in the building, or largely endowing an hospital, and I was thoroughly acquainted with his temper and manners, I could have no opinion of his virtue, though he had parted with the money, whilst he was yet alive, more especially if I was assured that, in his last will, he had been highly unjust, and had not only left unrewarded several whom he had great obligations to, but likewise defrauded others, to whom, in his conscience, he knew that he was, and would die actually indebted. I desire you to tell me what name, knowing all I have said to be true, you would give to this extraordinary gift, this mighty donation. Horatio, I am of opinion that when an action of our neighbor may admit of different constructions, it is our duty to side with and embrace the most favorable. Cleomenes, the most favorable constructions with all my heart, but what is that to the purpose, when all the straining in the world cannot make it a good one? I do not mean the thing itself, but the principle it came from, the inward motive of that mind that puts him upon performing it, for it is that which, in a free agent, I call the action. And therefore, call it what you please, and judge as charitably of it as you can. What can you say of it? Horatio, he might have had several motives, which I do not pretend to determine, but it is an admirable contrivance of being extremely beneficial to all posterity in this land, a noble provision that will perpetually relieve and be an unspeakable comfort to a multitude of miserable people. And it is not only a prodigious, but likewise a well-concerted bounty that was wanting, and for which, in after ages, 
thousands of poor wretches will have reason to bless his memory when everybody else shall have neglected them. Cleomenes, all that I have nothing against, and if you would add more, I shall not dispute it with you, as long as you confine your praises to the endowment itself, and the benefit the public is like to receive from it. But to ascribe it to, or suggest that it was derived from a public spirit in the man, a generous sense of humanity and benevolence to his kind, a liberal heart, or any other virtue or good quality, which it is manifest the donor was an utter stranger to, is the utmost absurdity in an intelligent creature, and can proceed from no other cause than either a willful wronging of his own understanding, or else ignorance and folly. Horatio, I am persuaded that many actions are put off for virtuous that are not so, and that according as men differ in natural temper and turn of mind, so they are differently influenced by the same passions. I believe likewise that these last are born with us and belong to our nature, that some of them are in us, or at least the seeds of them, before we perceive them. But since they are in every individual, how comes it that pride is more predominant in some than it is in others? For from what you have demonstrated already, it must follow that one person is more affected with the passion within than another. I mean, that one man has actually a greater share of pride than another, as well among the artful that are dexterous in concealing it, as among the ill-bred that openly show it. Cleomenes, what belongs to our nature, all men may justly be said to have actually or virtually in them at their birth, and whatever is not born with us, either the thing itself or that which afterwards produces it, cannot be said to belong to our nature. But as we differ in our faces and stature, so we do in other things that are more remote from sight. But all these depend only upon the different frame, the inward formation of either the solids or the fluids. And there are vices of complexion that are peculiar, some to the pale and phlegmatic, others to the sanguine and choleric. Some are more lustful, others more fearful in their nature than the generality are. But I believe of man, generally speaking, that my friend has observed of other creatures, that the best of the kind, I mean the best formed within, such as have the finest natural parts, are born with the greatest aptitude to be proud. But I am convinced that the difference there is in men as to the degrees of their pride is more owing to circumstances and education than anything in their formation. Where passions are most gratified and least controlled, the indulgence makes them stronger, whereas those persons that have been kept under and whose thoughts have never been at liberty to rove beyond the first necessities of life, such as have not been suffered, or had no opportunity to gratify this passion, have commonly the least share of it. But whatever portion of pride a man may feel in his heart, the quicker his parts are, the better his understanding is, and the more experience he has, the more plainly he will perceive the aversion which all men have to those that discover their pride, and the sooner persons are imbued with good manners, the sooner they grow perfect in concealing that passion. Men of mean birth and education, that have been kept in great subjection, and consequently had no great opportunities to exert their pride, if ever they come to command others, have a sort of revenge mixed with that passion, which makes it often very mischievous, especially in places where they have no superiors or equals, before whom they are obliged to conceal the odious passion. Horatio, do you think women have more pride from nature than men? Cleomenes, I believe not, but they have a great deal more from education. Horatio, I do not see the reason, 
for among the better sort, the sons, especially the eldest, have as many ornaments and fine things given them from their infancy to stir up their pride as the daughters. Cleomenes, but among people equally well educated, the ladies have more flattery bestowed upon them than the gentlemen, and it begins sooner. Horatio, but why should pride be more encouraged in women than in men? Cleomenes, for the same reason that it is encouraged in soldiers more than it is in other people, to increase their fear of shame, which makes them always mindful of their honor. Horatio, but to keep both to their respective duties, why must a lady have more pride than a gentleman? Cleomenes, because the lady is in the greatest danger of straying from it, she has a passion within that may begin to affect her at twelve or thirteen, and perhaps sooner, and she has all the temptations of the men to withstand besides. She has all the artillery of our sex to fear. A seducer of uncommon address and resistless charms may court her to what nature prompts and solicits her to do. He may add great promises, actual bribes. This may be done in the dark, and when nobody is by to dissuade her. Gentlemen very seldom have occasion to show their courage before they are sixteen or seventeen years of age, and rarely so soon. They are not put to the trial, till, by conversing with men of honor, they are confirmed in their pride. In the affair of a quarrel they have their friends to consult, and these are so many witnesses of their behavior that awe them to their duty, and in a manner oblige them to obey the laws of honor. All these things conspire to increase their fear of shame, and if they can but render that superior to the fear of death, their business is done. They have no pleasure to expect from breaking the rules of honor, nor any crafty temper that solicits them to be cowards. That pride which is the cause of honor in men only regards their courage, and if they can but appear to be brave, and will but follow the fashionable rules of manly honor, they may indulge all other appetites, and brag of incontinence without reproach. The pride likewise that produces honor in women has no other object than their chastity, and whilst they keep that jewel entire, they can apprehend no shame. Tenderness and delicacy are a compliment to them, and there is no fear of danger so ridiculous, but they may own it with ostentation. But notwithstanding the weakness of their frame, and the softness in which women are generally educated, if overcome by chance they have sinned in private, what real hazards will they not run, what torments will they not stifle, and what crimes will they not commit, to hide from the world that frailty which they were taught to be most ashamed of? End of section 37